A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, my lovely Betwixtlist. Fancy seeing you here. Do you come here often? I do. But before anybody does any coming at all, I have to give you your fair dues warning. Mm-hmm. Here it is. This is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults in an adulty way about a range of adult subjects. And you should be an adult too. All right. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's do this. me on a walk through Victorian London betwixters. A stone's throw from the centre of the respectable publishing world of Fleet Street, down a side street lurks an underworld of shady, sinful bookshops. Welcome to Hollywell Street, Victorian London's epicentre of smut. If you ever wanted to get your rocks off to some seriously racy literature, this was your destination. Among the 30-odd bookshops, you'll find copies of all your favourites. The Lustful Turk, the fanciful extreme of Bucksters, and of course the masterpiece that is The Story of a Dildo. Take your time. Have a good browse. We'll meet back at a coffee house for a debrief shortly. What do you look for, man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. Hello and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. Now we all know that the Victorians had a reputation for a certain prudishness. A prudishness that is matched only by their absolute love of everything filthy. With the printed word exploding in popularity and photography not far behind, it was only a matter of time before pornography found a much wider audience. And in many ways, the Victorians were the pioneers of porn. But who were the main characters who were peddling these titillating titles? What stories lurked between their pages? And how did the authorities react to this outrageous new art form? Joining us today is Matthew Green, author of Shadowlands, a journey through Britain's lost cities and vanished villages, to take us back there and to find out. I am ready if you are, Betwixters. Let's do this. Hello. 
Hello and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only Matt Green. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me on. It's a, a topic I've never spoken about before and I'm excited to do so. I'm thrilled to talk to you about this because one of the groups of people that I study a lot is the Victorians. And I think what one of the things that fascinates me about them is that everyone thinks that they're very prudish and repressed and buttoned up and that that they were shocked by sex. But this Mm. is not the case. Well, that's what I thought as well. And until I did this research into this kind of secret street in London called Holywell Street, and it was described by one of the newspapers as a place where dirt and darkness meet and make mortal compact. Daily Telegraph described it as the vilest street in the civilised world. So I dug into it a bit more and it turned out that it was just awash with pornography. And it, <laughs> like if you'd said, you know, what are you doing this afternoon? Like, I'm going for a little trip down Holywell Street. Everyone would have known exactly what you were doing. And I started reading as many of the books that they had on sale there. And my conclusion was exactly what you just said. Parts of Victorian society at least were far from prudish and repressed. Mm. And in fact, were quite the opposite. You couldn't say that they invented porn because we've had porn as long as people have been able to draw willies on cave walls, right? But I think mass-produced porn on an industrial level. Mm. I think you could say that that was the Victorians. Yeah, exactly. And this street was right next to Fleet Street. It was a kind of overspill, if you like. So it was a place, you know, if you'd walked up and down, you would have heard the hammering and the squelching. and the. Bet um, you would. Of, <laughs> I was going to say of the printing press, but um, <laughs> great. The first of many innuendos, I'm sure. Uh, and if you go mudlarking, you can find brothel tokens and mm-hmm. phallic um, from the Roman period. But yeah, on an industrial scale... I'd say this can lay a strong claim to being the first kind of street of porn. But the whole thing was, of course, officially forbidden. Yeah. Wow. A street of porn. All right, all right. So we're going to focus on this street, which was sort of like an epicentre of Victorian Britain's porn trade. I don't want to say where did the street come from, because it'll have been there for a long time. But when did it start acquiring that reputation? Who was the first pornographer that moved in? To take those questions in turn, it was uh, obviously, I would say, a medieval street named after the Holy Well. And the irony of that was not lost on commentators. (laughs) It was anything but sacred and wholesome. And it first kind of registers in the kind of moral consciousness, if you like, at the beginning of the 19th century, when in the 1810s it had become the domain of incendiary political print. So radical newspapers, radical pamphlets, espousing all sorts of extreme political positions by their standards. And then the government cracks down on that in the 1810s. And what you begin to see is that the printers of Holywell Street, they divert these revolutionary impulses from radical politics into hardcore pornography. So they realise that both are pretty good for sales. They can't do the politics anymore. So they shift to porn. And the first porn king, if you like, was a wonderful man called William Dugdale. And he was a man who was full of subterfuge. He he was hounded by the authorities. You know, he had to kind of 
change addresses and go by different fake names over and over again because all this stuff was illegal after the Obscene's Publication Act 1857. And whenever they suppressed one of his shops, then it would just pop up somewhere else. And he was a bit of a dodgy customer. He would rip entire chapters out of other people's books, then pass them off as his own, take a completely innocent book and then just add a kind of scandalous subtitle to make it seem like it was pornographic when it wasn't. <laughs> but normally suggestive frontispieces, suggestive titles. And in the end, they got him. And he was uh, sentenced to hard labour in the Clerkenhell House of Corrections, but he was incorrigible. So he died in there, one of the earliest victims of this Obscene Publications Act. Wow. But good, this whole trend, you know, for, for other porn kings to spring up and replace him. So they were never quite able to suppress it. No, because one of the problems you get when you try and suppress anything is that, first of all, it's very difficult to do. But you get into slightly difficult territory around, well, like what is considered porn and what is considered art? And what is the middle ground between the two? Is that something that you came up with in your research? Or did they just go, no, 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 it's porn. It's definitely porn. There is nothing artistic about this. Well, <laughs> I think if you read some of the books that were on sale, just to give you an idea for some of the titles, The Lustful Turk, Captain Strokel's Pocket Book, The Story of a Dildo, that's from the 1890s. That was very popular. The Autobiography of a Flea, an experimental lecture on flagellation by Colonel Spanker. They're not really works of art. I mean, you could argue that they are works of art because they go so strongly against the grain of Victorian attempted suppression. But they basically just present you with a world of sexual abundance. And mm. women in particular can just have endless sex. And whatever they see, whatever they cover, they can just get almost instantly. The prevailing medical opinions would have said, well, you know, that's going to lead to these sort of terrible diseases and you're going to blind and become an outcome. But nothing bad ever happens to them. And likewise, the men, they're written in this sort of picaresque, sort of faintly comic style. Just everything about it exudes harmlessness. But they're just having, you know, ecclesiastical orgies. The one about the experimental lecture by Colonel Spanker. It tries to identify the main sex positions that are popular in Victorian London, 1860. And it comes up with no less than 67. <laughs> All of which, yeah, like vividly illustrated. And some of them, I don't even know what they possibly could have been. There's ones that are called the sack of corn backwards, dog fashion flying. You probably imagine what that is. Yeah. Of course. The elastic cunt. They're not really works of art. It's got some great pillow talk in it. I should like my angel to crush my whole being into your sweet body, in your velvet mouth, your pretty rose pink cunt, your delicious chocolate bumhole. And I would squirt therein countless jets of thick, rich seed. Maybe it's art. I think it was more just something a that... flourish. A flourish, yeah, an abundance. That's the word I'd keep coming back. A super abundance. And that's why people like Dugdale had to be killed because this presented another world where mm. nothing bad was going to happen to you. Unless you catch an STD, that was the one thing that they were a little bit worried about because they didn't really have effective ways of curing it. So mm. suppression was strong. Lots of people were, were sentenced to the workhouse and people you know, were arrested and had their livelihoods destroyed. So um, they took that seriously and they didn't really think of it as art. They, I don't mm. think so. I think that you can actually read a lot of these works that are still online now. You can actually buy them in Waterstones and other reputable bookshops, which is kind of crazy when you consider where they come from. And you can also buy classic collections of Victorian erotica now. But I think like the idea that no one actually gets hurt in them is quite an interesting one because it can be quite brutal, actually. And a lot of things that you 
you sort of get a sense what the Victorians were into. And there's a lot of, well, sexual assaults and playing around with rape. And there is child abuse in there. Think things like My Secret Life. Like, it's not even, like, a borderline case of assault. No, no. It's just full-on. Sense, really, that it was behaviour, that, that this was bad behaviour, but it wasn't necessarily something that defined you as sexuality would become, mm-hmm. particularly queer sexualities of later on in the 20th century. It's not so much that people weren't harmed in the encounters, which are detailed and sort of titillating detail, but it's more the, the people perpetrating what we would call assault. So there's one written experimental lecture. This is a young girl is sort of whipped, really, without mercy, for the Mayfair Flagellation Society. So I don't know if that still exists or not. They're saying the lecture was the pleasures to be derived from crushing and humiliating the spirit of a beautiful and modest young lady. But it's never really clear how into it she is. And I'm not sure she's actually particularly into it at all, to put it mildly. Yeah. And it does tread a thin line between masochistic sex and outright assault. I think the flagellation is, again, this really surprised me, but it wasn't just a street where you could go and buy dusty porn, but it was full of brothels as well, Ewell Street, um, Wick Street as well, which squirreled off the other way. They were full of flagellation brothels where you were sort of meant to go and sort of relieve yourself, you know, having your snouts buried in these books you could go and sort of work it off but I think the fact that it's flagellation is interesting because it's suggestive you know people so flagrantly breaching the moral codes of society but it sort of crops up again and again have you been to Holywell Street have you ever because everyone's like well where is that how do I find it and I tell people just go and look for the statue of Gladstone (laughs) of all people in front of the church of St Clement Danes you know he's standing there all clenched fists and he looks kind of um, solemn and stately, but also mildly disapproving. And his eyeline goes straight down what was once Holywell Street. Never noticed that. Yeah, I don't know if it's deliberate, but it's something that I've, you know, like in a psychogeographical way, it's become deliberate, even if it wasn't to begin with, if that makes sense. And it goes all the way down to the Church of St. Mary, you know, in the Strands, St. Mary de Beau. And that's where this highway of smart was. And that's how you find it. Nothing left, of course. No trace whatsoever actually in in the physicality of the streets but it's quite a bland concourse but if you know what was once there and there's amazing photographs of it these men seemingly with their top hats furtively peeping as one paper put it into sin crammed shop windows every so often disappearing in and coming out with a little smile in the corner of their mouth just an unknown pocket of london that's so true. You wouldn't ever have known what was actually there. And I would love to have known. I would love to have seen it. But what was it? What was it like? Like when, because obviously, I don't know, maybe they had like a mailing system where they could send stuff. But you didn't actually have to go to the shop. But obviously, you'd still have to go there physically, in person. And everybody knows what that street is. And everybody knows what those books are. And everybody knows that you are not going in there for the article. That is a really interesting dynamic of like, who was buying this stuff? Yeah, well, you did have to go there because having it mailed to you would have been a really risky strategy. Yes. Because the police are kind of still pretty new at this stage and there's a vigour to them and, and they relentlessly pursued anyone that was stupid enough to leave their address and would have raided their house. And So from what I can gather, it's obviously just the middle classes, the literate middle classes. I think actually these would work quite well for people that couldn't read because a lot of them take the form of dialogues and they yeah. seem like they're designed to be put out to an audience. So literacy need not have been that much of a barrier but I imagine it was just a kind of bank clerk or a a lawyer who just wanted a bit of colour to leaven the grind of the working day but fantastically 
successful. This wasn't just the minor outputs of activity. It was either there's this pornographic bibliography that gets published every year, the mm. um, Index Liberum Prohibitorum by Henry Ashby Spencer. And this lists <laughs> all the books you can get there, which are privately printed or for private consumption. And there's an awful lot of them. And you get a little kind of praise or write-up of them. And they often kind of feign disapproval, like such scandalous <laughs> fronts to my more never did I see. But then it goes into so much detail. It's actually like you can just sit down and enjoy probably the most enjoyable bibliography that anyone would ever read. And they'd say women were very interested in going in as well. And this is actually what scandalises the press the most, the idea that the weaker sex, as they were described in, in one article, were being actively corrupted and economy. And they're saying that the weaker sex, are, you know, what must this be doing to their morals? So throughout the century, the authorities are desperate to destroy the street, but they're not quite sure how to do it until mm. the end. I love that. Like our little our little lady brains just couldn't cope with it. So early on in the 19th century, the print industry booms and that must have fueled this. So you get all of this erotic literature that's being it's still expensive, but it's being more cheaply produced than ever. What about photography? Because I don't know the exact details on this, but I would love to have seen how quickly after the first daguerreotype was printed that somebody went, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> Yeah. So basically, when you went into Holywell Street, you asked what it looked like. It's an interesting question. It, mm. It's very old fashioned. It had sort of lurching timber framed houses with gables. A lot of them looked like they were sort of anomalous and slightly kind of seedy, almost these sort of grimy Tudor style houses. And it still had some old shop signs surviving from beautiful sulky crescent moon, which is still in the Museum of London. You'd go in, ground floor was printed erotica. And then from about the 1870s, I'd say the mid-1870s, but getting into its stride in the 1880s, you could go upstairs and you'd have to have a bit of a conversation with the owner so he could mm -hmm. be sure you're not an undercover policeman or anything like that. And then upstairs, you'd get these incredible slides, the stereoscopic slides had a great sense of depth. And that's where you would just have projected in front of you you know, whatever they had. So Softcore porn, not as extreme as the some of the things that you know, go on in, in the printed literature. You don't really see those extremely graphic acts being depicted in the photographic porn, but it's a bit more tasteful, but it is nonetheless like nudity. And then whatever tickled your fancy, you could buy prints or even sometimes actually the slides themselves if you had a means of projecting them in a sort of magic lantern or something. So 1870s, 1880s, and always on the top floor. Is there reason why the photographs in Hollywell Street weren't hardcore porn? Because I don't want anyone to think that the Victorians weren't producing hardcore porn. They very, very much were. But that's interesting that you said it was slightly softer in these shops. Yeah, I think it could be that what was written about in things like Randiana and Captain Sprinkle's <laughs> Pocket and Story of a Dildo, so much of it's often a flight of fancy. It's fantasy. You can't always tell. There's an amazing book called The Sins of the Cities of the Plain, which mm. is the first extended gay erotica novel. And that takes the form of the sort of confessions of a epileptic rent boy called... Jackson. Uh, exactly, yeah. Goes by the name of Marianne as well, I think. Marianne, he's a Marianne. Marianne. That, that's it. And there is some 
you probably know a lot more about this than me, but there's some debate about how genuine that is because there yes. was actually a person, but they changed some details. Maybe they had to. So there is a line, but so much of what you read in the other ones, it's obviously just a flight of fancy. So actually to get people depicting, you know, like an ecclesiastical orgy with people dressed up as a... That would take quite a lot of production. <laughs> oh, and see, I see what you mean. <laughs> and also you'd be scared out of their mind that like they're going to be identified. And, you know, it's not like when you watch porn to people often masked, you know, it would have been kind of problematic and more real the fact that it was palpable and just the oh, impact yeah. he must have had and broadening the horizons of reality and like, maybe it was just a bit too intense in that way but they did get more pornographic as time went on but less kind of absurdist sexual scenarios i would say just impossible it would, you wouldn't survive that's, it. That, that's very true they're not actual depictions of what's going on in the literature but I love looking at Victorian porn. <laughs> that sounds like such a weird thing to say. But you get a real sense because the photography is so new. And it's like there's this idea now that you can photograph people having sex. But that's so new that nobody's got a real sense of what is going on yet or what looks sexy. Like they're just there and everybody's standing around trying to work out how they're going to make this look erotic. And then somebody decides that they're just going to bring in a taxidermy dog for no reason. It's a very strange... Uh... A witness yeah. uh, reminds me a bit of the, there was a, a big market for blind fiddlers really? kind of a little bit before the Holy World Street really erupted but blind fiddlers were in great demand around Covent Garden those sorts of rakish areas because wow. they could score orgies and they wouldn't be able to see the, the, the <laughs> reputable politician <laughs> or who the, the sort of nobleman what or even you know which director of the, the bank firm it was I guess a taxidermy dog so it's not going to speak it's not going to that's very true that's very your secrets that's very true it is odd it's like there's a real sense that nobody has quite worked out what looks sexy yet. So we're going to do some really weird background setting. And like, I, I just love looking at it because everybody's got pubic hair and everyone's got their little tummies. And we haven't got that stylized porn that we have today. It sounds weird, but it's quite sweet in a way. Yeah. So they're trying to make it stylized, have an atmosphere with the taxidermy. So maybe they are trying to portray it as art more mm. than in printed literature. They are. The mechanics of being photographed in the sort of late Victorian period. You have to sit still for quite a long time because it would have taken a while just to do one kind of pose and then you could move on to the next one. So they seem quite self-contained in these kind of sprawling narratives that you get in the novels. I'll be back with Matthew after this short break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm thrilled to say that today's episode of Betwixt the Sheets is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses with us and I'm no exception. It can be a whole range of things that weigh on us big and small, such as, can I justify these elaborate impulse purchases? How do I tell my friend that, no, they really shouldn't have cut that fringe? And of course, the evergreen classic, why are we all here? Bottling these things up can really take its toll, which is why therapy is fantastic for getting them off your chest and working through them with an expert. Even if it's just to tell your mate that their hair doesn't look its best. If you're thinking of starting therapy, BetterHelp is built to be convenient to you, being entirely online and flexible to suit your schedule. Simply fill out a questionnaire to be matched with a therapist and you can change at any time with no additional cost. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash betwixt to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash betwixt. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on not just the Tudors from History Hit, my guests and I run through the full gamut of human emotion and experience. From the heartbreak of the Virgin Queen. Elizabeth not being able to marry arguably the only man in the world she ever really wanted to marry may have, for that reason, not married anyone else. To a prenatal battle of the sexes. A male and a female seed meet in the womb at conception and whichever one is stronger determines the sex of the unborn child. From Lady Jane Grey facing her executioner. You can't help but feel just the utmost sympathy for this young girl. To why the Laughing Cavalier is, well, laughing. He strikes me as someone who goes off on a sort of swaggering booze-up. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. It's fascinating just to see this world and like, like who would have been there? Who was selling it? I mean, it's obviously like Hollywell Street is its own little destination, but there must have been pockets of this stuff all around London, even before the 19th century. And I know that you've done a bit of research on the jelly houses, which I love and I'm endlessly fascinated by. For anyone listening going, well, I like jelly. <laughs> Tell us what a jelly house is. Oh, well, I was very much hoping this would come up. Jelly House is the sort of thing that once I tell people, they never really believe me. They sort of say, oh, did, is that true? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a historian. Everything I say is true. Um, <laughs> jelly Houses are maybe not what your listeners are thinking. They were places that were especially popular around Covent Garden. Parts of the Strand after the Strand became a bit seedier and elsewhere as well. They were places simply where men would go in Naked, pretty much from the waist up. They'd be tied to chairs. Live violin music would pipe up. Then prostitutes would appear with enormous, exotically shaped and coloured wobbling jellies, which they would just wobble on silver platters around the man, purely for his titillation. Like nothing, he didn't touch the prostitute. He didn't, nothing sexual transacted, but it was just to kind of arouse these male patrons through 
the infallible power of wow. jelly. Where did you read about this? What sources are you using? I'm, I'm aware that in the 18th century, jelly houses were places that sold jelly. There were places that sex workers would meet their clients and they were definitely seedy and had a naughtiness about them. But <laughs> where are you reading about by the time you get to the 19th century, it's time for a jelly orgy? Most of my sources for that are from the 18th century. Um, in particular, there's a diary of a 23-year-old law student called Dudley Ryder, who wrote, it was in shorthand, he didn't want anyone deciphering it, and only a third of it's ever been published, but he writes about the jelly houses. Um, they also, I believe, appear in the press of the time, and I think perhaps in Boswell as well. But as I was going through some newspaper reports, I was writing my Time Traveller's Guide to London newspapers, one of the best ways of just bringing it to life. And there were still references to the jelly houses by the Victorian period. It is earlier. It's like early 19th century rather than later on, but they definitely still existed. And wow. we actually tried to recreate one on one of these <laughs> theatrical walking tours. And we just stupidly did it in the middle of rush hour in an alleyway. And so there's this man and this woman playing bl wobbling the And people were just like, what on earth are you doing? Did you just um, do that in the yeah, street? Not... Did you set that up in a, in yeah. a shop? It was a surprise for the people on the tour. Huge crowd of people. Almost more popular than the sort of tacky performances you get in Oh my God. And people were just astonished that this used to be an erased part of the culture. Yep. Maybe it'll yep. come back one day. I didn't. It is tough to see that one making a comeback, isn't it? It's also just bonkers how erotic Jelly actually is. However, now I say that, I'm immediately reminded of Beyonce, who famously sang, You Aren't Ready for This Jelly. So maybe we still think about Jelly as being weirdly sexy. Uh, it was an art form. Jelly was sometimes cast in the shape of Notre Dame or like St Paul's Cathedral or the face of politicians and it was not something that we really have anymore we just think of it as this sugary treat and I like the idea you know the printed word stimulates people on holy and then they can go to their flagellation broth or the jelly house or church just to repent it's all there and when you sort of look at what sort of surgeons said about male sexuality and how you had to tread a line you had to kind of conserve your finite resources and not mm. spend too much otherwise you succumb to this rather horrible sounding spermaria and then you know you go blind your teeth fall out you lose your sanity and yet in the books here is a world of sexual abundance where mm. you can until your heart's content you can feast in various unpleasant ways and, and nothing bad happens to you so that's why people like Dugdale had to be destroyed it was exposing Sort of mainstream yeah. views about sex and sexuality and in a way that they found really sort of threatening, I think. So I want you to talk about Dugdale a bit more in a minute. But before we get there, just while I'm thinking about what was really popular at the time, you have touched on flagellation. And when I started looking at Victorian porn, that was something that definitely surprised me is just how much of that there is. Now, obviously, a slap and tickle, a spanking BDSM has always been very popular, but the Victorians seem to have absolutely loved it. It was a real thing for them. Mm, mm. Yes, I was completely surprised by just things like the Mayfair Flagellation Society mm -hmm. was real. I, I thought that this would have just been made up, but um, I looked into it and there are references to it. There were lots of flagellation societies. I think in some ways there, there must have been a kind of kitsch appeal because you know, they're, they're obsessed weren't they with the gothic and that harking back to yes and so there would have been like the way they built so many kind of neo-gothic buildings and you know if you look at something like the royal courts of justice or St Pancras station so there would have been that but then also this idea of kind of self-punishment and um purging what, um. what society had told them were impure thoughts 
what the kind of thoughts that society found to be problematic and corrosive. I think all these things were probably going on, but what a flagellation broth actually looked like, I've got no idea because it could have just been a sort of very functional mm-hmm. route or they could have really sort of camped it up and, you know, like had pictures of sort of monks whipping themselves in the face with kind of flagellation literature kind of on the table. Like, I haven't actually found any sources that allow us to recreate that vividly. So I have mm. to leave that for the basis of historical fiction. It comes up again, not just in books that are devoted to flagellation, but it comes into all the other ones as well, which was a, a real treat. It was known abroad as the English vice in the 19th century. That's how much we liked it. Right. I didn't know that. <laughs> I guess it sort of goes in and out of fashion. What other, were there other like English vices or was that? That was the big one. It was spanking, whipping, flagellation, having your bottom spanked. The, honestly, the English were known for it. Right. And I don't know why. But I like what you said about maybe it's like a punishment thing because the Victorians, well, they were very repressed. <laughs> they were a very repressed group of people, but they were also filthy. That must have created a state of like, maybe that's what was coming out. And they were like, okay then, well, I'm naughty. Just spank me. Yeah, there's that sort of double vision. And I like that because it's it's almost like a virtuous circle. They're punished, But then the punishment itself is around. And so that feeds back into the sexual desire. So what yes. was meant to rob them of these uh, scandalous thought actually ends up fueling it yet further. Holy Wall Street, the whole thing is testament to suppression as well. It's it's not just as, as you were just saying, it's not like, oh, this shows they weren't repressed. It's a reaction. You know, when you try to forcibly suppress something, often mm-hmm. there is like the other side of the coin. And that's what you see in such detail and it's not just one or two pawn shots it's when you look at photographs of this it's all the way up and down the street there's as many as 30 and they're peppered with secondhand shops and genuine bookshops but catering to a huge and seemingly irrepressible demand and the authorities in the end the police the press the clergy certainly begin to scheme to find ways of sowing the downfall of Holywell Street. And they begin presenting these proposals to say, well, actually, this is really bad for traffic. Because if you think about it, it was squeezed in behind the strand. And they said that this was leading to lots of congestion. We think it might be a good idea to demolish the whole thing and widen the strand. And no doubt some people did think that, but the presence there of all the pornographic shops, that was the real target Mm. and gave a piquancy to the proposals. And eventually that's what happened. Brought down by parking restrictions. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was must have been like a sort of cathartic release for the authorities in like yes. 1901. The whole thing is just reduced to a pile of rubble. And, you know, all these buildings that had flattened, it was, by 1902 and gone to make way for that rather solace kind of Oldwich development, which is, you know, like a wow. sort of terrible traffic fumes um, today. But of course it wasn't the end because just as the original princes had spilt westwards from Fleet Street, the same thing happens again. And the pornographic printers go further west and establish bases in Charing Cross Road. Mm. And it's only a matter of time before they get to Soho, which still to this day, to some extent, is the centre of erotica and porn. So it's interesting that it went on a journey from Fleet Street all the way to Soho, where it Although, of course, Soho these days, they're, they're trying to pasteurize it. and Gentrified. Yeah, like yeah, right. Not so much about traffic, is it? It's, it's luxury more about... Luxury yes. brothels. It was traditionally a hunting ground. Mm. And Soho was the hunter's ground. And the hunt is still on, but for a different reason. You can still feel that. That's not my... I got that from Ackroyd. It's just a very late... Before I <laughs> passed that off as my own. But you do still feel that. You know how a certain 
energy lingers in the air yeah. and like, it's almost irrepressible and you can feel it on Fleet Street you can feel it somewhere at Comic-Con but you definitely can in Soho even as these attempts to shut down these much loved kind of quite bawdy institutions you could never quite erase it or at least mm-hmm. its memory. Tell me a bit more about was it was it William Dugdale the first pawn baron of Holywell Street where did he come from what was his story and yeah just tell us about him because he sounds fascinating. Well Dugdale proved that you could actually make a lot of money from the pornographic book trade. So he's like a kind of microcosm for the whole story of the streets. So he began cutting his teeth with radical prints and publishing things that were proposing universal suffrage and other kind of progressive causes. Okay. Um, but then he sort of adapted and saw which way the tide was turning after in the 1810s, this is sort of clamped down upon. He just decided, let's plow all this energy into kind of pornographic books and see how it goes. And initially it was less risky because the Obscene Publications Act wasn't until 1857. So there was this sort of hinterland where the sorts of books I've been mentioning were published and they probably did violate some sort of laws, but uh, essentially they weren't the kind of things that could get you locked up. So he starts up a shop, I forget whereabouts. I think it was near that silky crescent moon somewhere in Holywell Street. And he's delighted to find that there's a huge market for them. And there was a protocol in the shop. You could go in and he went and said the right password to him. Or, you know, I'm looking for something a a bit spicier. He'd know exactly what you meant. Might be greeted with suspicion. But then he'd take you you around the corner to another shelf and, and you'd see what you really wanted. Unfortunately, his shops kept on being raided by the police. Many of these people were undercover. Detectives went in as well. He also used to send um, pornographic literature to Eton, of all places, in (laughs) envelopes, marked marked art studies. But it said, like, if undelivered, please return to. So the idea was that the kind of young public school boys would then think, okay, let's go to this shop. And he did. So he was full of those incredible tricks of the trade. And he also liked to writes what he wrote his own pornographic books and stories and I believe poems as well and what I most like about the sheer vanity of the man he wrote his own advertising copy praising the brilliance of the works that he himself had written and sometimes he would just take other people's works and pretend to have written them himself like there was a very different attitude towards like yes and these are just ripping bits of other books and say well this is my book no no one really would be held to account in quite the same way you know if, if you or I just took another historian's <laughs> chapter and said oh we wrote that he ended up using four fake names from several different addresses and he was wily at evading custodial sentences he actually on one occasion it looked like he was going to be sent down um, but he threatened the jury with a knife <laughs> and it worked, which is, you know, an idea if, if we ever find ourselves oh. um, on trial. <laughs> so he, but eventually, you know, as his luck ran out, as one's luck always does in the end, and he was finally convicted to hard labour mm. in the Clark House of Corrections. And that need not, on its own terms, have proved fatal. But I think at his age, it was. It was often a death sentence because the conditions were so brutal that you wouldn't survive it or your health would be so badly damaged that you wouldn't survive long after it. That's right, yeah. And they must have known that when they were passing down the sentence. They would have like, we've got to get rid of this guy once and for all. But, you know, as I said, he was killed off, but then it was only a matter of time before new maestros of the mm. porn industry arose. And the, the sheer number of titles is extraordinary, just catering mm. three different 
type of taste. I went back and looked at the sins of the city and the plain just to find out how, you know, like by our standards, how erotic it was as a, because you'd think if, if it was a sort of homosexual novel, it, it might not be. That's what I first thought. Then I thought, well, actually, why would that be the case? Because if it's clandestine and it's like printed illegally and passed around from almost from hand to hand, a bit like an illuminated manuscript, like, there's no reason really why it would be tame and it certainly wasn't so I, I got it up on Project Gutenberg and yes. just searched for cock um, <laughs> that you'd have been there a while searched for fuck and this is okay so this is how sophisticated my research <laughs> technique um but I, I only had about an hour so I there is a lot of cock in that book <laughs> There is, and it's got, I found actually, like, since I might as well read it. There's a bit where he gets exposed, this young rent boy and the man who's looking after him. It's like, see boys, what a fine prick the little fellow has got. He fucked my ass all night and had his first spend. He said, lifting my shirt and exposing my affair, which was already as stiff as a poker at the idea of another go, like the previous night. So the second half of that sentence is a bit sort of hammy and what we would imagine is quintessentially. But the first bit, very explicit. And it's just, it's full of things like that. Yeah. And again, you know, a sense that that in and of itself, these transactions are not a sort of a signifier of a sort of completely corrupted soul within, you know, like in the sense that you might expect. So just fascinating stuff and an endless amount of material. What I love about when you when you read Victorian porn is once you've got past the the well, it's actually quite hardcore this stuff, and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. It's the turn of phrase that they're using because obviously it's all written in nineteenth century grammar and syntax and expression, and to the modern ear, it sounds like Jane Austen doing porn. It's like it's so florid and it's so the, the descriptions that they use for, you know, really like mad stuff. And I love it. I love it. It is so funny. Very nice way of putting it. Yeah. It's like Jane Austen doing poor. It, it's sort of very like proper, formal, quite long sentences, mm-hmm. sort of florid descriptive. And then suddenly you get words like like I've just been saying, which suddenly sort of yank you into the modern day. I mean, it's a bit like sort of Jacob Rees-Mogg doing porn or something like this. Well, don't say that. You'll ruin it. <laughs> but yeah. If Jacob Rees-Mogg looked at porn, he would he would look at Victorian porn without a shadow of a doubt. He would, oh, because he wrote his book about Victoria, didn't he? Like, so, like, well, anyway, you could have him on next week and read him the pornographic writings. But, but I know what you mean. I find the style fascinating. I, I, I think it actually makes it more interesting in, in many ways than reading like erotic literature today. But because of this mm. fusion of this, this very formal, loquacious style... It was criticised at the time for being badly written. Oh, yeah. See these very pompous um, vilifications in the press. They sort of say they were looking at engravings and sentences as, you know, as vilely formed, as vile as the subject matter is what they're trying to express. So that the sort of style and execution were both seen as particularly objectionable and feeding in to one another. But it's the pace that impressed me more than anything. It's it's like you're reading sort of Condide or something. Mm -hmm. It's almost like from the 80s, just... It's, it's relentless pace, just encounter after encounter after encounter. Oh, God, yeah. The other thing that always gets me is that the men can get hard-ons again as soon as they've ejaculated. That seems to happen all the time in Victorian porn. It's just like, boom, and they're ready to go again instantly. That's a trope, yeah. And there's that passage in My Secret Life where he, he deals with impotent, and it's like the one time that doesn't happen, and he, he has this huge sort of meltdown. He was like, well, this has never happened before. Like This must be an emblem of mortality. And But yeah, it's automatic sort of 
clockwork. Oh, Matt, you have been so much fun to talk to. And my final question is, do you have a favourite Victorian erotic text? Is there one that you've kind of got a bit of a soft spot for? Or a hard spot in this case? Is there one where you were like, well, I quite like that. That is my favourite. I would say it probably would be an experimental lecture by Colonel Spanker, 1878. Because I was just surprised by almost like how, not quite academic, but it's sort of like, we're now going to, it's divided up into sections. And it's like, we're now going to look at some of the main sex and, and then it proceeds to list kind of like over 60. So it's got that sort of codification, that rigid fetishization of classification, which is so much of an intrinsic feature of Victorian culture. But also just what is being described is at times so sort of debauched and quite at odds with this almost like mathematical layout. So that's a really good one. The other one I, I think what warrants mentions that the story of a dildo. Have you read that one? Yeah. It's like, and it's just got the most incredible frontispiece, very classy. It just did the story of a dildo, a tale in five tableau. I think it's interesting when they swivel around the narrative perspective and do it from you know, the, the Guta Percha dildo in, in, in that case. And also the one, the autobiography of a flea, all done from a flea's perspective. So very clever little kind of narrative devices. But I would say the Captain Spanker one is a, a good one to start with. And they're enjoyable. That's the thing. That it's not like you don't feel like you've been sent to study some weird esoteric branch of literature. <laughs> it is actually you sort of get quite into it and then you think, well, I, I quite like a trip to Holywell Street and visit a jelly house, you know, just, just to see how weird it would have been to actually have, like, breathed that world. Matt, you have been absolutely fascinating to talk to. And if people want to know more about you and your work, where can they find you? So, I'm Dr Matthew Green. My first book was, like, a time traveller's guide to London called London, A Travel Guide Through Time. That's how I know about all this, because each chapter is set in a particular year. You're parachuted in... You explore it in, in the present tense and the, the second person. So you are going into the flagellation brothel. The, you, you feel, you know, this and that. And I just did a book called Shadowlands, which was a journey through lost Britain. And my new book is a queer history of Britain from the Stone Age to the present day. Oh, um, wow. so, yeah, I'd love to. If you'll have me back. In oh, a couple yes. We'd have quite a lot of uh, quotations from that one as well and it's it like all my book it's a mixture of history travel and memoir do you have a social media that people can follow you at i do it's uh instagram just dr matthew green and x i guess as we have to call it now it's the same just dr matthew green so and if anyone wants to come on a walking tour with these strange actors and musicians leaping out then the organization is called unreal city audio um, we run them every week, but they're not audio tours, they're live tours led by me. So I can show you the statue of Gladstone and where Holywell Street was, um, etc. Amazing. Matt, thank you so much. You have been an absolute treat. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Matt for joining me. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you'd like us to explore a subject or if you just fancy dropping by to say hi, you can email us at betwixt at historyhit.com. We have got episodes on everything from senior sex to scandals at Hampton Court, all coming your way. This podcast was edited by Siobhan Dale and produced by Stuart Beckworth. The senior producer was Charlotte Long. Join me again, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast contains music from Epidemic Sound.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.